Dear fellow redeemed, we briefly consider our gospel reading from the gospel of Matthew chapter 28. And on this Holy Trinity Sunday, on a beautiful day where it dropped down nice and cool last night, probably cooled the house off even without the AC, you think, wow, what a God. What a God that we have, we can look around, we can enjoy the blessings of peace and safety, of security and good weather, that we can come and worship him. And we've got like a page and a half of a creed trying to describe what this God is like and what he is not like. And you get the impression that there has to be a lot more here, a lot more here going on than we normally consider and we normally think about. And that's kind of the impression that Jesus gives us here in Matthew chapter 28. Because if you consider the alternative, consider the alternative of a a God that the Semitic peoples of the ancient Near East would have thought as their God. We've got one God who will take care of the rain for this area. One God who will make sure that our flocks are productive and our fields are productive. One God that we will ask and we'll sacrifice to if, um, if only he or she will heal our ailment. Small gods. Puny gods. Gods made in the shape of, of humans or of animals or of some other distortion of God's creation. Gods that even the most thoughtful people, at least of the time, the most thoughtful people could not imagine or conceive of. As Paul describes in um, Acts chapter 17, walking through the streets of Athens, and then he comes before this dialogue that's been going on for probably 400, maybe 500 years there in Athens, as they try to talk about new ideas. And he says, I was walking around and I saw all sorts of altars to all sorts of gods. And their culture had been imprinted with this idea for over a millennium. That there were just different gods who played favorites with different people. And they would intervene in warfare. And they would act on your behalf. And usually they were worse than the soap operas that you see on TV. So in comparison, we humans aren't that bad as compared to the gods. That was the, the Greek idea. Looking for a God that was like them, but not. And as Paul walked around Athens, he saw that they had found all sorts of gods who would be like them in some way, but were not enough. Again, even though, even though the ancient idea had been, I have my God for this area and for this particular reason and for this particular blessing or task, The Greeks said, well, we've got all these gods, and even though we can't know them, we know in some way that they're like us. And Paul says, the one that you worship as unknown is the one that I proclaim to you today. This idea of of God who is above all, of a God who is true, a God who is the one and only, is not an idea that we can perceive on our own. And we see that. That if we were to simply look at creation around us and examine the feelings within us, that all we could see was just the fingerprints of God, the brush strokes in the sunset, the hand of God, 
hidden behind all the activity of this world. We might get some perception that there is a God who is good and who is orderly and who is powerful and he is wise. But then the honest inward look would say, well, also, that God has standards and I'm done for. And so we need a God who reveals himself. And he reveals himself in a way that is obviously true to who he is. He's not hiding anything, but he reveals himself um, after a manner or in words that accommodates to our language. God who is above our logic and outside of our human capacity to fully understand. How can, how can God be both three and one in one person, but he's not three gods, but one, but he's not just one, he's also three? And you, you see in the Apostles' Creed, the simple statement of faith. A couple hundred years later, the Athanasian Creed, the somewhat extended statement of faith, and after you're done reading that for... You know, Two minutes, three minutes, you're like, I get it, but I don't know that that is exceptionally helpful. Because this God that we worship is so far above us that he is above our human ability to logic and reason, and yet he accommodates himself to our language. He reveals himself piece by piece, and he brings himself down to our level. And in that revelation, such as we had from the very first reading, in the beginning, God. We see God interacting with his people and making a creation, a place for you and me to live, a place for people to dwell. You see God in the next chapter after our reading um, that he had placed that tree there because he wanted people to worship him. He revealed himself to the people so that they would worship him. And every time they passed by that tree, they would bow their heads and say, that is God's tree. And I love the Lord who has done so much for me. And yes, I will honor him by keeping his law. That on Trinity Sunday, when we talk about our triune God, that it's not some exercise in logic as if we are simply to parse this out. And it's not even the, the limping comparisons that we try to understand what God is like. He's like this or he's like that. And, you know, a half a dozen different illustrations that don't capture the reality of this one true God. We just go to the pages of Scripture and what do we see there? We see a God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who reveals himself to you and to me. And he uses human language that can be translated into other languages. And he uses simple words. In the beginning, God. He uses simple words. Take off your sandals, Moses, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. He uses simple words. As he says, Abraham, leave your family and your household and leave that whole idea of a puny God who doesn't measure up and follow me and worship me. He uses words even through the prophet Isaiah after he had revealed himself over a period of nearly 1,300 years. And the Israelites were like, all right, I get it, but no thanks. I prefer all these, these other little gods that I can see and that are more like me. And God would chuckle and even get a little sarcastic, calling his people back to him as if, as if it were a comedy of cosmic proportions. 
And he laughs and he chuckles cynically and he says, look at the gods that the world proposes to you. A man brings in a piece of wood that he chopped down from the forest. And half of it he burns in the fire to keep himself warm. And the other half he shapes with a tool. And then he stands it up. And by the way, he has to use extra nails so it doesn't topple and totter over. And he says, don't you see? Don't you see the greatness of this God that we worship? And not just, not just his greatness, because that is visible in the world around us. But this God who has not only accommodated himself to our language, but who has joined our human race. In that same prophet where God had said that this one will be called Emmanuel, God with us. Talk about this God who is, who is above all, who has no beginning and no end, who is so big that nothing is bigger and so small that nothing is not smaller, who fills the entire universe and who was there and he, he spoke the words that brought the universe into existence, that that God wanted to be with us. And that, that God went through every stage of human development from the very earliest life, nine months before he was born, that that God chose to reveal himself and to become incarnate, to be in the flesh with you and me. So that you could say, well, what is our God like? You don't have to resort to, well, he's, it's kind of like an egg that has a shell and a white and a yolk. Or it's kind of like an apple that has a peel and a core in the flesh. Or it's kind of like the sun. Or all these other illustrations that are always terrible, but we still try. What is God like? He is earnestly desiring your salvation. What is God like? He is almighty and powerful and holy. No one can stand in his presence. And yet this God became a human, became a little baby that needed to be cuddled and carried. And this God who needs no thing, who um, doesn't even need our praise or adoration, and yet he willingly receives it. This God who needs nothing, chose to need to be fed by human parents. This God who is the source of all knowledge, who reveals himself in words, is the same God who needed to learn language. This one is the entire content of scripture and about whom all scripture speaks. He is the same one who needed to learn that language in order to study that scripture, who sat with the scribes and asked them questions in order to further his understanding to probe the limits of their understanding of the Word of God and to grow in grace and knowledge. On this Holy Trinity Sunday, it would be simple enough to talk for a long time about all that God is and what God is like. And it would just confound our reason. And, you know, kind of the way I explain it is if you think it's starting to make sense, then you're probably going down, down the wrong path. That's not the purpose. The purpose is for us to see how this God has joined our humanity, became your brother, how he has accommodated himself to your language in order to bring you into his presence. And we dare not take that lightly. Because that's the, the warning that we see. That we have been brought into the presence of holy God Standing alongside Isaiah, we don't necessarily hear the uh, song of the cherubim and seraphim back and forth, holy, holy, holy. We don't see a coal from the altar purifying your heart or your lips 
or your speech. But this holy God is no less here. And he has made you righteous to stand before him. That this holy God walked in the dust of the Judean wilderness in order to walk in your place under God's law. That this holy God chose to purify you not with a coal from the altar, but with his own body and blood which he shed for you at the cross and with which he walked out of that empty tomb. That this holy God chose to purify you so that his praises wouldn't be simply that of the holy angels and those who did not leave him, but those whom he has called to be his own, those he has created and redeemed and set apart and sanctified. Do you see? The special place that God has given to you among all of his creation that he, he created those angels to serve him, to praise him, to honor him. But Jesus didn't become an angel to redeem the angels who had rebelled. He became a human, and still is a human, to redeem the people whom he had lost. And it's all in that context, after that entire incarnation, and life, and death, and resurrection, and the disciples are just starting to pick up on there's a lot more here going on than I realized. And Jesus says, don't you see that this God wants to be with you forever? That this God wants to encourage his Christian church forever? That this God makes himself known and makes himself present in a way where he still accommodates himself to our humanity? where he still accommodates himself to our humanity, not as, not as a tiny baby or not as an unassuming man, but he accommodates himself to our humanity by bringing us into his presence where he hides himself yet again. And he says, dear Christian, here is your Lord. He hides himself under the words of, words of a pastor who has a tough time reading Genesis 1. He hides himself under a sacrament where your children are washed and given a new life. He hides himself in the other sacrament where he says, Dear Christian, don't you see that all of this was with you in mind? That this Jesus, this second person of the Trinity, who is always God, always will be God, eternally God, without beginning and without end, that this second person of the Trinity, not the Father, not the Son, but he alone became a human in order to make you his own. And he, together with the Father, now send the Holy Spirit to create faith, to do what we could not, to bring you into his cover of righteousness. To say, dear Christian, this isn't a logical excursion. This is practical life. To bring you into this, this truth and this reality that our God has created faith, that our God, yes, that's the last part, has brought you into his body, the church. And he says, now, dear Christian, go. Go and make disciples. How? By <laughs> launching into a logical excursus about why a God who is greater than our humanity is more logical than a God that we can understand. Or the logical argument that a God who is unseen is greater than a God who is seen. 
He says, go. By teaching and by baptizing. Because he is the one who accommodates himself to our language, and he is the one who accommodates himself to the way that he wants to work. Where this God who lives in unapproachable light without beginning and without end is the same God who wants to bring more Christians into his fold, his flock, is the same God who wants to approach each individual heart one by one, whether in holy baptism or through the spoken word, to say, dear Christian, dear friend, you have a God who cares for you. Amen. Amen.